Alison. Hi, Sarah. So we've got a, a, a cool show lined up today. Proust's Madeleines and why they probably should still speak to us. Festive cheer, as we discover it's possible to maybe feel a bit less guilty about indulging in foie gras. Mm. But let's be honest, the subject everyone's talking about today, Thursday, as we record is... Ah, right. Football. The match. <laughs> On est en finale, so yes, we're in the final, they chant. A big night then in France as it moved into the final of the World Cup, beating Morocco 2-0. Yeah, crushing Morocco's dreams. Yeah, awful. All those tear-filled faces of Moroccan fans in the stadium in Doha that I was watching on the TV on Wednesday evening. It's tough, isn't it, being mm. the underdog? Let's get a grip on ourselves and on this subject with an expert, our colleague, Paul Myers. Hi, Paul. Hi, Alison. Yeah, so you are a, what's known in the business as a massive football fan. You also just got back from Qatar, where you were following the tournament from day one for the RFI English website. So as a fan, Paul, quick reaction then to Wednesday night's match? Well, speaking objectively... Uh, <laughs> totally objectively. <laughs> as, a, as a fan, objective, I know those things don't go together, but as an objective fan, France, worthy winners... Morocco did what they could, but France, I think for the second game on the trot, were lucky. And I use that word carefully because the ball just ran for France in the key moment. Yeah, so it was an exciting match. Fantastically exciting, okay, yeah. Well, that's, that's what football fans want, isn't it? It was also an unusual game because for the first time an African and an Arab country got through to the World Cup semi-finals. Yes, that's the, the only only the fourth team from Africa. It was Cameroon in 1990, Senegal in 2002, and then Ghana in 2010. So it's been a long time coming. And of course, they went one better than Ghana and got to the semi-final. So that obviously is a landmark and that's what's given the the tournament an extra edge. What's interesting with Morocco, right, was in the lead up, all the talk was France facing off against its, you know, former colony, yeah. Morocco. You know, there was concern about, oh, is this going to really split people's loyalties? Um, it didn't really happen. Well, I hope not. And it shouldn't <laughs> really, because you look at the France team, Oh, the Moroccan team and the composite, and even the England team. You can yeah. look at the Portugal team. You can look at all the teams nowadays and say, well, yeah, they play for Portugal, but what's the ancestry? And this is the same for so many of the teams these days. Well, on and the Moroccan team, we've got, you know, Mbappe's best friend. They play yeah. together on Paris Saint-Germain. Yeah, you know, Ashraf they, Hakimi, yeah. you know, they play together each week. There, there were pictures of them, obviously, at the end, uh, swapping shirts. In fact, Mbappe swapped shirts with Hakimi and he went off to greet the French fans with the number two of Hakimi draped over his ample shoulders. And It's sort and, of an important symbol. That is important because it shows the friendship and it shows the respect between the players. And and that's so important as a message to project to to everybody, you know, yeah, to the organisers. Yeah, we're not talking well. about nationalism. We're talking about just a, it's a game. Yeah, and we're talking about wanting to do well for your team. Yeah, there's a certain pride involved, though, isn't there? In you know, when you when you win for your country. Oh, yes. I yeah, mean, it's... that's what motivates so many players to do well. So President Emmanuel Macron was 
in, in Doha, in the stadium, yeah. for Wednesday night's match. He spoke immediately after the result and he was very, very proud. Nos compatriotes ont besoin de, voilà, de, de joie simple et pure. Le sport en procure. Le foot tout particulièrement. He said that the French, our fellow French need simple and pure pleasure in life and football is a great example of that. But beyond that, Paul, what did you take away from Macron's speech? I thought that was political. <laughs> it was really, he's as smooth as Mbappe is on the field. I mean, it was the right thing to say at the right time. He allowed himself to be interviewed. I mean, he didn't have to be interviewed and he spoke about his his pride about the French team, and he named a few players. Then pay tribute to the Moroccans, obviously. He's playing it cool. Questioned also about the whole backdrop to the tournament. That, that's been the controversy of, you know, why, you know, what, should he have gone? Should he be there? Given all the criticism of Qatar with, you know, human rights abuses, yeah, migrants dying yeah. in construction. It gets uh, awkward. Yeah, it gets awkward, but at a certain point, yeah, he's either got to tell the team not to win so he doesn't have to go and he's not going to do that. So he's got to go once you get to the semis. He's got to be there. He's said the right things. He you know, made it clear that when the decision was made to attribute the World Cup to Qatar, it was a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Mm. It was a different set of circumstances and we really can't keep projecting our values of 2022 onto, let's put it bluntly, a bunch of idiots in 2010. Hmm. Um, it's easy to do now because, of course, we can pontificate and be rather sententious. And it's not the case. We can't do it. It's too late. And the only thing left is to just boycott it. And that's never going to happen. So World Cup final, Sunday, Argentina, France. Yeah. Messi, Mbappe, you two know, PSG players again. Oh, yeah, there so, we go. PSG. so it's super French focused yeah. in a way, no matter what yeah. happens. But if France does, you know, get the third World Cup victory, um, if we compare it to 1998, when we really saw this sea change in France, and there's, you know, what they call the bleu blanc beurre uh, kind of phenomenon, where yeah. you had, you know, all these people of immigrant background kind of coming up and becoming heroes, can we expect maybe a repeat of that? I can't see that. I can't see why that should happen. In in a strange way, sociologically, France has changed over the over those twenty four years, in which this is no longer the issue. And if it is the issue, if somebody makes it an issue, then that will be the issue, um, <laughs> yeah. because. All you have to do is look at the composition of the France team. You look at the heritage of um, Randall Kolo Mouani, Congolese ancestry. You look at Ousmane Dembele. His father was is Mali and his mother is Senegalese, Mauritanian. And if it is an issue, then it's one which will do an injustice to the person making it or trying to use it. And whether that's uh, Emmanuel Macron or the opposition, it's, it shouldn't be the issue. And people who are campaigning for greater solidarity within, within France must not make it an issue because it will just detract from the atrocities which are happening to those communities to say, well, look, you know, look, France can win and we're all together, when in fact that was just the facade which was injected in 1998 to continue a whole heap of oppressiveness which those communities, especially in the, um, the Cité and the Bonlieu, were suffering. And it did go on and it is going on. And football must not be used to 
kind of say everything's okay because it is not. And that was RFI's Paul Myers. Um, if you want to look for his World Cup coverage, often quite personal stuff, yeah. yeah. And um, you can go to RFIEnglish.com. And he's also made some good videos. So, yeah, check it out. So, Sarah, some music there by Ravel. That was uh, Marcel Proust, one of his favourite composers. So, French writer Marcel Proust, who died 100 years ago this year. There's been a lot of commemorating going on all of this year. Uh, A big exhibition in Paris at the the big public library, for example. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely a big name. Mm. Lots of people reference Proust's Madeleines, you know, those little cakes, right, Mm. that remind him of his childhood, transport him back to his childhood in his his book. Uh, Exactly. uh, this this big book, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, it's so the Madeleines feature in the first volume of À la recherche du temps perdu, translated in English most often as In Search of Lost Time. It is absolutely enormous, three thousand pages, seven volumes. It took him fourteen years to write, and he died in Paris of pneumonia in November 1922, struggling to to finish it. The novel itself is narrated through the eyes of of a narrator called Marcel who is not Proust himself, by the way, so it's not an autobiography. It traces Marcel's quest to find his vocation as a writer. It explores big subjects like memory, love, sexuality, social mores, the elite, identity, all of that at the turn of the 19th to 20th century. Many French and foreign literary experts reckon it is one of the greatest works in contemporary European literature, but... How many people have actually read it? Yeah, <laughs> Have you, Sarah? I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> no, no, actually, I really haven't. And I, I'm kind of feeling like maybe I should. <laughs> OK, well, I'll be honest, because I haven't either. Uh, Although I did make an attempt when I was a, a student uh, many years ago. Uh, and turns out I'm not on my own. Josh Landy, uh, he's professor of French literature at Stanford University in California, has just published The World According to Proust, and his book has convinced me that I should give Marcel another go. All the more so because Landy himself did not fall in love with Proust at first sight. I had to read this book uh, as an undergrad. I was required to do so and got as far as page 72, realised I'd forgotten everything I'd read, started again, got back to page 72, and by that time, my time had run out to write my essay that I was supposed to write on Proust. And that was pretty much the end for many, many years. I just thought I was defeated. So Proust, he went into a bottom drawer. What happened? What made you get back into him? Well, I was in my 30s when I got back into him, and it was all because of a friend of a friend who had one of those lovely quote books and she'd written down a couple of quotes from Proust and they were two of the most beautiful sentences I've ever read in my life and that's what got me back to Proust. What was he talking about that you love so much? The basic idea is that however much time we spend with a person we never get to know everything about them we never get to know really what makes them tick deep down but art does that art is a miracle that allows you to enter the world of another human being. And of course, you can do that not just with people you know, but people you've never met, people who are long dead. Art is miraculous. That's what those sentences are talking about.
A lot of the novel is set in Paris, round about the turn of the century. There is some historical fact, isn't there? There's this sort of salon society, which is not viewed in a particularly positive light. Just tell us a bit about maybe what we can find out about France at that period in time. Yeah, I mean, it's a 3,000-page novel, and, you know, everything's in there, right? And so you do get glimpses of life in France uh, around the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries, even up to World War I. So there's some really interesting scenes during the First World War. Um, yes, there's scenes of salon life. There's scenes of changing salon life. How did World War I affect the salons? There's the Dreyfus Affair, so the, the rising anti-Semitism, which, of course, unfortunately is, again, the case today. There's a talk of homophobia, so the Oscar Wilde trial is very recent, in the very recent background of this novel. So there's, there's all kinds of things going on in the background. of the, You know, it's a story really about a character who wants to fall in love, he wants to become an artist, he, he wants to enter high society, all kinds of things he wants. But, you know, yeah, in the background of that, there's all kinds of fascinating social issues. You mentioned Dreyfus. So this is Captain Dreyfus, a Jewish captain in the French army, wrongly accused of transmitting secrets to the German army. So this really, yes, highlighted a period of strong anti-Semitism in France. Proust has been accused of being anti-Semitic. And even also maybe as a gay man, not doing enough to show that gay love could be lovely, legitimate. People who throw that kind of criticism at Proust, what do you say to that? Well, these are big and interesting and complicated questions, but he himself was Jewish. On his mother's side, he was Jewish. On his mother's side, so for many intents and purposes, Jewish and gay, uh, even though his character is uh, Catholic and, and straight. So he creates this character who is prone to a certain degree of homophobia at times, at the very least to kind of misunderstanding, confusion about what same-sex love is. But he himself, Proust, is, you know, he himself is gay, obviously, and Jewish and, and very concerned about anti-Semitism. And he was himself a Dreyfusard, so he was involved in, you know, campaigning about the innocence of Dreyfus. And at a very young age. When it was presumably quite hard to do that. Absolutely. It was sort of swimming against uh, the current, not, not all of society, of course, Anatole France and others, were, but at least some of society. But uh, yeah, when it comes to same-sex love, um, even the character in the novel can sometimes be wonderfully impassioned and lyrical on behalf of the beleaguered gay community. So that the longest sentence in the novel, and there are some very long sentences, this is a three-page sentence, is about the plight of gay men in contemporary France uh, and in contemporary Europe. So it includes people like Oscar Wilde. So there are some lovely sentences, some beautiful scenes where, yeah, it's true that at times the narrator is confused. Sometimes he's, he's negative. But there are also times when he's incredibly positive. He has this lovely line where he says, it's a really great thing. The angels did such a bad job in Sodom of eradicating all the people who were tempted towards uh, same-sex love. It's a good thing, because lucky us, we still have those folks among us. We cannot have a conversation about Marcel Proust without evoking the Madeleine. The idea, I guess, that you can see or taste or hear something that will jog your memory. It's part of the core of Proust's interest in a certain kind of memory, which... Uh, he calls involuntary memory. 
So there's two kinds of memory, the kind that you deliberately dig up and the kind that just sort of happens to you. Uh, and it might happen to you when you smell something that you haven't smelled in a while, like the, the smell of the, the school that you went to uh, all those years ago. Uh, and it's this, this wonderful experience of almost being transported, almost teleported back to a previous, not just a previous time, but a previous version of you. And so that's the thing that I think Proust's really interested in. What does this experience of memory tell us about you? about what it is to be you. And? So it, it does two things. One, it takes you back to this old self. And so it shows you that you've changed and it shows you the way you've changed and it shows you who you were. It reminds you who you were then. But it also does this other thing, which is that it shows you that a part of you hasn't changed because that's the part that experiences that smell or the, the taste of the Madeleine dipped in tea. That's the example from the novel, the character who's middle-aged by now dips a Madeleine in tea, has a little taste, and is transported back to his childhood. So there's a, a part of you that's changed an awful lot, you know, between the time that you were seven and the time that you're in your middle age. But there's a part of you that's remained the same, which, which the narrator of the novel calls the true self. And that discovery of a part of us that never changes is something incredibly inspiring. For somebody maybe who has never read Proust and would find the task perhaps very, very daunting, how would you sell the book? There is something special about embarking on a big project of reading. And so, yeah, I can't promise people it will be easy, but it's precisely the ways in which it's difficult that makes it so important, right? Because in a way, it's sort of the anti-Twitter. It's the, it's the opposite of, of 280 characters. Um, and so you kind of have to sit and luxuriate. And I say have to. You also want to. It's beautiful. And people find themselves just getting carried away and lost, not just in the plot, in the love stories, and the story about a, a character trying to become an artist and trying to figure out who he is, but also in these gorgeous sentences and the beautiful comparisons and all of the other stuff that goes along with it. So even though it's, I found it really hard to get into, and many people find it really hard to get into, once it gets its hooks in you, then you're in for the long haul, and you come out of it at the end a different person. You come out of it somebody with a really good attention span. You come out of it, I think, with a strengthened memory. You come out of it with all of these really important habits of mind strengthened through the experience of reading this amazing novel. So, Alison, so you are now going to pick up Proust. This is it. It's decided. <laughs> yeah, this is, I am going to try. And I promised uh, Landy that I would uh, give it a go. He gave me a tip, uh, in fact, yeah, to sort of cut down the the, the sort of, you know, the... The, the daunting task exactly, of 3,000 yeah, pages. <laughs> exactly, to make it seem a little bit more possible. What mm -hmm. he said you can do is you can read the first half of volume one, Swan's Way, up to the Madeline episode, and then pick up the second half of the last volume, volume seven, Time Regained, oh. because... Those two bits put together give you a pretty good gist of the novel overall. And it's no accident because it turns out that Proust wrote those two parts first of all. Oh, interesting. Okay, so we can condense it. I, I guess yeah. I, I am inspired. Um, <laughs> listeners, have any of you read this book, In Search of Lost Time? And how did you get through it? We'd love to hear from you. Let us know. Spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Okay, okay. 
So, Allison, this is our last show before the end of the year. We're getting into the holiday mm-hmm. season, parties, dinners. I mean, I love all of the sweets this time of year, <laughs> like the gingerbread, the chocolate. Um, what's your holiday food of choice? Ah, I do like cookie Saint-Jacques, mm. yeah, which is a traditional thing in scallops. France. Scallops, exactly. Yeah. So, so, so no foie gras. No, I don't eat foie gras. Yeah, yeah, but it is a French delicacy, right? Oh, my and goodness, it's served it at all these parties. Well, especially yeah. as a delicacy, literally fatty liver um, from ducks or geese who've been force-fed so that their livers swell up sometimes to twice as much as their usual size. Yeah, and many see that as a form of animal cruelty, you know, forcing animals to eat so that they essentially develop a disease. Yeah, yeah. The industry, though, says that these are migrating birds who naturally store fat Mm. in their livers and elsewhere in order to fuel their long journeys so that this force-feeding process is natural. Natural or not, this Mm. process is banned in several EU countries, including Italy and Germany, Britain's King Charles has recently banned it in his royal residences. Yeah, and and under EU rules, actually, force feeding is considered animal abuse and Mm. is illegal. However, there are exceptions for countries who have traditional links with the process. France is one of them, and so it has an exception. Foie gras is part of our regional patrimony. Mm. Rémi Bursulin is a researcher with the Inserm Health and Medical Research Institute, and he discovered actually a gut bacteria that changes geese metabolism so that they eat more and fatten up quickly without needing to be force-fed. Wow, so it's interesting. interesting. The process involves feeding day-old chicks with this bacteria, modifies what's already in their guts, makes their livers fatten up over several months. So he co-founded a company called Avivel to develop this process of non-force-feeding foie gras. He discovered this interplay between gut bacteria and liver fattening while he was looking at humans, actually. And then lab experiments showed a relationship in rodents as well. It was not a big leap into foie gras, especially since he's based in Toulouse, which is kind of one of the epicenters of (laughs) foie gras territory. We're here in the southwest of France, where foie gras from ducks and geese are quite famous. So it you know, it's not a huge discovery to say, okay, those bacterial setup do control fatty liver in human and rodents. Could be the same thing in, in geese and ducks. I told my colleagues, okay, if that is true, then it means that we find something big. So um, are you personally, do you eat foie gras? Do you enjoy foie gras? Yes, I do enjoy foie gras, whether it's false fed or, or not, as a matter of fact. But it doesn't mean that because I do eat foie gras, everyone should do the same. The, the fact that we discovered a process, a biological and natural mechanism through which the, the, the fat is being stored in the liver of geese is uh, not a reason not to stop force feeding. We would like to propose an alternative way. Um, have you run up against, I mean, you are in, in a region where there is a lot of traditional foie gras farming. Um, have you run up against resistance, um, you know, from the traditional farmers? Like, what's that relationship At the like? beginning, there was a reflex on their side. Certainly, they were considering that, you know, we may take their job over away. So we explained to them that we have an alternative way to make foie gras that we call naturally fatty liver. We cannot call it foie gras for um, regulatory issues. So we call it naturally fatty liver. And we told them that, don't worry about that, we're going to sell it as a luxury product. And that doesn't basically put any kind of shade on the regular traditional strategy. Um, 
who are your clients? I mean, are we talking French? Are we talking foreign? Like who's approached you or who, who are you approaching? We distribute it on ourselves. So we've been working with some uh, top chef because we do believe that those will be the best key opinion leaders. I need to say that we had a blind tasting and uh, th those professionals who did taste it were very surprised by the quality of the product. There are two main qualities. The first one is that it is not bitter because the bile acids which are released by the liver following force feeding are not released by the liver for following our process because there's no force feeding and our livers are not outrageously big they are just regular size like mother nature size meaning that we don't have livers twice the size of what it is in response to force feeding it's full of fat but it has a size which match with the biology of the host, which is very important for the quality of the liver. The structure of the liver is stronger. Why? Because the, the liver cells had had time to build up correctly, to grow correctly and to store fat, while uh, over the time frame of force feeding, which is roughly one to two weeks, the fat cells do not have time to reshape themselves. Therefore, when you cook it, most of the time it melts on the pan if you want to fry it, for example. Ours do not. It stays stiff. So you've created this product that's better than the original. Yeah. And it doesn't carry all the kind of complicated baggage of animal cruelty and, you know, the force feeding and all that discourse. Right. Seems that you've maybe cracked the code of finding this ethical foie gras, which seems to be a big deal because that it seems like the world is going to these days the European Union and, and different markets, people don't want force-fed foie gras anymore. Yeah, we propose an alternative way and everyone will consider by himself uh, whether it makes sense to buy our alternative options or the traditional one. But you hope it'll be yours. Well, uh, the key point is that we would certainly like uh, someone on the planet to buy ours just because it tastes differently. And, uh, and because I think it's fun, and for some people, the ethics is extremely important. So we do respect that point of view as well. So it sounds like he's being very careful not to upset traditional foie gras farmers. Yeah, yeah. definitely was very hesitant to engage on, on this ethical side of force feeding. I mean, I think it is a tricky situation because, you know, his company is still working on getting regulatory approval from the agriculture ministry to sell this stuff. And the agriculture ministry, you know, clearly on the mm. side of its farmers. You don't want to ruffle any feathers, <laughs> as it were. No, they're clearly tapping into a market, though, aren't they? Sure. Yeah, there is a growing demand for so-called ethical foie gras. Um, their foie gras is still very much experimental, though. I mean, the company is still doing research and development on a very small scale. I mean, they're working with 200 birds. Um, but this all leads to the question, why eat foie gras at all? You have three base ingredients. You have cashew nuts, white miso, and coconut oil. I also have a special weapon, which is this. It's a yeast extract. I've been beta testing that for years. So this is Julie Bavant. She's the chef at the Clean restaurant in Paris. It's all vegan. And she makes a faux gras or mm. fake foie gras. She calls it ni foie ni gras, neither liver nor grease. It's sort of a play on words. Um, and it's made of cashews, miso paste, and coconut oil, as she said. She told me that the journey started, actually, with her daughter. I have a daughter. She's 20 now, but uh, she turned to uh, a vegetarian regime when she was, like, 
11, something like that. And she loves meat. She loves chicken. She loves foie gras. She loves big Christmas dinners and, and parties with food. So it was a huge change for her, huge change for everyone, actually, uh, in the family. Her decision was, a, was an ethical reason. Yes, it yeah. was for for the water. She thought it was completely stupid to uh, continue eating meat while it was using so much water. So your daughter says, I'm going to become vegan for these ideological reasons, yes. but I miss meat. And you, as the yeah. good mom, says, all right, I'm going to make you some of this. Yeah, exactly. At that time, it was like 10 years ago, you didn't have that choice that you have now in the supermarkets to uh, for fake meats. Okay, so I have my cashews. Do I have my miso? I have some here. One Christmas, my daughter says, I'm not sure I'm going to resist to foie gras because I really, really miss that. Then it was my goal, like, okay, what can I do? Because I think it's really... You're making all these efforts and you ruin everything just for a bit of foie gras because really you like that and you don't want to miss it at Christmas, it's a waste. I bought everything uh, that I could find in foie gras. I tried everything. Some were super nice, some were awful. I was already uh, beginning to do my research about vegan cuisine, so I was uh, trying to do like, uh, you know, the raw cheesecakes with cashew nuts, and coconut oil and things like that. And once I forgot one in my fridge and the texture became, it was almost like butter, very dense. And I thought, yeah, maybe I could make something totally vegan, but that people wouldn't imagine it's vegan. Now we have to put like three grams of uh, porcini powder. My first attempt, it was okay but it was not perfect. It was not the thing I wanted to to get. So, uh, yeah, I think I've made maybe one month of test non-stop, tiring everyone with my foie gras and my testing. Yeah, it can be very boring to, to eat foie gras every day. So, 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 poivre noir, poivre noir. We need to put, yeah, one gram 50 of black pepper. So you experimented, you spent a month experimenting, and you finally found, so was your daughter convinced? Everybody was convinced. I was convinced. I don't eat foie gras anymore, but at that time, I wanted to be able to to make a comparison. Okay, so now we have the pepper, and then we're good. We just have to boil the water, put some agar-agar in it, mix everything. When you decide to uh, renounce meat, or uh, any byproducts of meat. Uh, it doesn't mean that you don't like that. Maybe you need uh, some transition. Maybe you need to have a phase where you still eat like fake meat to reassure yourself. And I think my daughter, she was very, very, very pleased with that. Today, she doesn't eat any fake meat. So I think she doesn't miss it anymore. But for a long time, I think the urge to, to eat something meaty was here. Yeah. And I think it's, it's something that uh, it, everybody can feel. Last year, I think I made like 200 in two weeks, which is a lot. 
most of the people who came to, to buy some weren't even vegan, not, not even vegetarian. They just didn't want to take part in the foie gras industry because it's uh, really ugly. I can already make maybe five of them, maybe four, I'm not sure. We're gonna see. Okay, so. Is foie gras like a really key part of like a French holiday meal, do you think? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Not in every family, but it stays typically French. You can have a um, party meal without that, but you know, it has a festive feeling to it. Okay. So I'm gonna put that in the fridge. And then tomorrow morning, it'll be set. Yeah. I think you can share a table with some people eating meat and some people eating vegan. If you want to have a common field, this is interesting. And this is also a way to uh, just convince people that, uh, no, it's not the same thing, but uh, why not try it? So why not try it? Did you, Sarah? I, I did. I did. I've tried it. And actually, I've tried others, even commercially produced ones. Um, oh. Honestly, it's hard for me to tell. As a vegetarian, I haven't had real foie gras in a you've long never, time. Oh, you, um, you've never eaten it? No, I have when okay. I was younger. But, um, but you know, friends and family who are meat eaters have tried um, this one and others. And, you know, they actually say there's a surprisingly similar feel um, and a sim similar taste. Obviously, as Judy says, it's not the same thing, but it's not completely off either. And it's not, it, it's pretty good as a product itself. So. Right. Because very often, actually, it's funny with the sort of vegetarian alternatives, often it's the texture yeah. that you're looking for well, even that, more than the taste. That's what she, mm. she's going for. And actually, as she pointed out, this is the texture and she's going for what's called a cooked foie gras, kind of like a terrine pate thing, as opposed to the raw essentially organ, you know, because there are these two kinds. And yeah. so she's going for that. And she said, actually, you know, it, it may not taste like the most high-end foie gras, but, you know, yeah, it's, it's foie gras yep. in its way. Yeah, and it allows you all to sit around the table and, yeah, mark the festive season. the show and that's it for this year we'll be back in january with new episodes and in the meantime you can find previous episodes on rfienglish.com or on the app uh, where you're listening now spotlight on france is a production of radio france international this episode was mixed by cecile pompiani and if you have any questions about france or if you want us to dig into something please let us know you could just send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr and you can find us on instagram spotlight on france see you next year happy holidays sarah bye-bye <laughs>